Hello, greetings, thanks for joining us today. We hope that you're doing well. We're really glad you have an interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. Luke records for us in chapter 10 of his gospel, beginning in verse 38, the following. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, Luke records this incident. Uh, in between kind of two contextual markers. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, uh, Peter has already confessed that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus has already been transfigured at this point. Uh, And Luke tells us that he has set his face to go to Jerusalem. But it's only Luke 17 and verse 11 that Luke reports that Jesus is actually on the path to Jerusalem, passing along the Galilee-Samaria border. So why would he bother even mentioning in chapter 9 that he set his face to go to Jerusalem? Uh, well, he's trying to show that all of what we're seeing here, from chapter 9, 51 through chapter 17 and verse 11, is Jesus is mentally on the road to Jerusalem. He's already heading there, so everything that we're reading about what he is saying, what he is doing, is to be understood in terms of this uh, this final consummation when he will uh, die and be raised again. And so after he set his face to go to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus refused to fire, bring fire upon Samaritans who had rejected him. But he dismissed three who would follow him, but not wholeheartedly, at the end of chapter 9. In the beginning of chapter 10, uh, he sent out the 72 to towns before he arrived there, and they were to provide exhortations and warnings. And he proclaimed woes on these Galilean cities that had seen great works, yet had not repented. The 72 return, and they're very excited because they have authority over demons. Jesus validated they had received authority from him, but they should rather rejoice that their names are written in heaven. Jesus then thanked his father for hiding things from the wise and revealing them to babies. He encouraged the disciples because they saw things that a lot of wise men and kings had wanted to see. And then, just before this incident that we're discussing, the lawyer put Jesus to a test about the commandments of life, to love God and to love one's neighbor as oneself. He wanted to justify himself, asking who his neighbor was. And that's when Jesus set forth the parable of the Good Samaritan and confounded the lawyer's chauvinism and displayed Jesus' concern that his followers should do good to all people. And it's after these things were told that Jesus uh, entered a village and stayed at the house of Martha and Mary, leading to this narrative that we're discussing today in verses 38 through 42. Now as we begin, we, we see that there's this woman named Martha and this woman named Mary. And if we just went on Luke's account, we wouldn't know any better. We would just think that these are just random people that Jesus is staying with. Uh, But they're most likely the same Martha and Mary who are the sisters of Lazarus in John 11 and chapter 12. And if it's the case, which seems most likely, we need to keep the John 11 and 12 narratives in mind. We can see in those narratives that Jesus has a very deep friendship with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, far more profound than with most. And this might explain how Martha 
uh, grew exasperated with Jesus and was willing to say, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to do all the serving? Uh, which most of us believing Jesus is the Lord would probably not have the confidence to say to Jesus, right? Uh, Martha is serving, and it's very easy to kind of create a caricature of Martha. But in John 11, Martha proves herself to be no slouch when it comes to faith and understanding. She has great faith, and she understands Jesus and the resurrection. In fact, in John 11, 21-27, uh, it's in the words of Martha that we have the most robust de declaration of what uh, Israelites were expecting in terms of the resurrection. Oh yeah, I know he'll be raised on the final day. You know, this expectation of, of a resurrection, which was prevalent at the time, but isn't normally voiced but is voiced in with from of our people Martha, uh, demonstrating uh, the kind of uh, believer in God that she is and a believer in Jesus that she is. So these are very close friends. That's the expectation that we should have. And so Martha and Mary have extended hospitality to Jesus and the apostles. And Martha is very busy with preparations. We would imagine uh, with serving, so probably food, uh, maybe other things that need to be done. And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his instruction. Uh, Martha has a lot of work to do, and she's very understandably exasperated. She asks Jesus if, she see, if he sees how she's working without assistance and wants Jesus to tell Mary to help him, help her. Now, in the ancient world, we can see, for instance, in Genesis 18, that men may have welcomed people to display hospitality. Um, we can see that maybe they'll do something here or there, but the real work of food and other preparations is left to the women and whatever slaves were around. Um, yeah, the three men coming to Abraham, Abraham welcomes in, and then he expects Sarah to prepare to provide most of the food and his servants to prepare the animals. And so Martha is not being unreasonable. Um, we don't know if the apostles are with him. We kind of assume they are. Uh, so making preparation for at least 15, if not more, is a lot of work for Martha to handle. And Jesus and others are going to want to be fed. They're going to want to have provisions. And so we shouldn't beat up on Martha too much. But we should also marvel at what Jesus is allowing Mary to do. Uh, to sit at the feet is an idiom uh, for gaining wisdom and instruction. This is what uh, you'd sit at the feet of a rabbi. And of course, Jesus is being seen here as a, as, as a great rabbi. And at the time, women were generally prohibited from doing so. And so that Jesus even allows Mary to sit at his feet, let alone to welcome her to do so, is truly extraordinary for the time. And uh, something upon which we're going to comment a little bit more later. So this is the situation. So then, you know, the, the Martha has made a request. And Jesus gently chides her. She is anxious and troubled about many things that she's flustered about the food preparation or whatnot, but only one thing proves necessary, and Mary has chosen the good part, and it will not be taken from her. It's very important to note here that Jesus is not invalidating Martha's concerns, but he contextualizes them. He says, okay, yes, they're, they need to be done, but they're not as necessary as the one thing, um, which is to sit at the Lord's feet, listen to his teaching, to uh, consume the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 3, John 6, 13-58 will we'll go along with that. And so Mary is devoting herself to the thing of greatest importance. And notice it will not be taken from her. She has the right to be there, and her desire and interest to sit at Jesus' feet is right, good, and in fact exemplary. We're still talking about it. And so Jesus is commending Mary's desire to sit at his feet in the learn of God. So what are we to 
take from this? What are we to learn from this, this little uh, story that Lucas told us? The core message in his interaction with Martha and Mary is the value of what's called the good part, although contextually probably the better part. Good portion, better portion. The better part here is held in tension and contrast with the things that have caused Martha trouble and anxiety, which would be the pressures of daily existence. And in this regard, Matthew 6, 25-34 is instructive. You know, the idea that our concern is not supposed to be with what we shall eat or what we shall drink or what we shall put on, but to seek first uh, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to us. Well, we really do a good too well to sit, focus here on the idea of sitting at Jesus' feet as the better part. And better. Because so often when we discuss things in faith and life, we reduce everything to a binary. Well, there's good and evil. There's righteous or sinful. And there are certainly matters of righteousness and sin, like the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 19-24. But not everything falls into this category. Not everything is this strict binary of this is good and this is bad. Uh, preparing food, serving people, showing hospitality, these things that Martha was doing and what were making her frustrated and flustered were good things. These are the type of things that Jesus commends in Matthew 25, 31-46. Peter encourages Christians to be hospitable in 1 Peter 4 and verse 9. But to sit at Jesus' feet was a better thing. A greater good versus a lesser good. Yes, we can be tempted away from righteousness to commit sin. But we can also be tempted to be so consumed with lesser goods in life that we miss out on the greater good. It's not good enough for something to be good or righteous. We also must make sure, need to make sure that we've not compromised or sacrificed the better part because we've been consumed with lesser goods, the lesser things. And then that leads us to really talk about our priorities because everybody has 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. The only question is, how are we going to allocate that time? And that means, how, what, if, what are we establishing as our priorities? And whatever we may profess about being dedicated to the better part versus that which causes anxiety and trouble. And we all know what the right answer should be. Uh, the proof is not in what we profess. The proof is in what we actually do, what we prioritize, what is demonstrated by what we do when it comes to our priorities. Because uh, what we prioritize proves often what we idolize, for better or for worse. And to this end, we need to really ruthlessly cut through the justifications and rationalizations regarding our priorities. You know, if you tell somebody, look, I, I'm just too busy, that means I have other priorities. Oh, I can't afford that. Normally means I have other financial priorities. Uh, it's, there's, okay, certainly, you know, if you look at a $35 million house or something, I can't afford it is a literally true statement. But when it comes to a lot of the things we're confronted with in life, it's just because we have other priorities. I would be there, but I have this or that going on means this or that is more important to me. And look, those statements aren't always a bad thing. Yeah. I can't afford uh, buying this thing for me I don't really need because I'm going to help others in need is a demonstration of healthy priorities. Uh, I am too busy to spend time in something frivolous because I need to, to spend my time with God is completely commendable. 
the problem is not that we have certain things that are better priorities than others. The challenge is that the things that we end up rationalizing are not really the things we should be prioritizing. And yeah, there are things we need to do that do seem mundane and banal. Uh, we need to work. We need to sleep. We need to associate with people. Ephesians 5 and 6, 1 Timothy 5, 8. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to have a lot of our time dedicated to basic functions in life. Uh, 40 to 60 hour work week. Uh, we should be dedicating, we all should be dedicating eight hours of sleep a night, right? That would be uh, itself um, almost 60 hours a week. Uh, we should have some time to eat. You know, the, the, most of our time is going to be consumed with these things. But we must honestly and forthrightly consider what our priorities are. Not based on our aspirations, but we actually demonstrate our priorities to be based on our behaviors. And again, God tells us to work. God tells us that we need rest. God tells us that we need uh, to associate with other people. So when we do these things, we are still honoring God. Uh, don't get me wrong. Um, and we know what the right answer should be, right? That God should come first in church and family and work and then in that order. And we should aspire to make sure that the right answers are our answers. But we should not be so deluded as to assume that our good intentions are sufficient. If we were to assess how we spent our time in the past week and the week before that, what are our priorities? Are they really obvious that it's God, church, family, work, things of that nature? Um, this is where we really need to take uh, consideration of that thorny soil in Matthew 13, 7 and 22, where the word is there and the word could find fruitful ground. So the people are denying Jesus. But the cares and concerns of the world and the love of money chokes it out. That those forms of anxiety, uh, that's a very advisable metaphor. You know, because if you've seen thorns and things of that nature, those weeds grow so much more easily than the kind of plant you're trying to cultivate. And that's the way it is with worldly anxieties and worldly cares, is that they grow and multiply so quickly and so easily. And our problem is that sometimes we think of this as this kind of dramatic experience, but it doesn't have to be dramatic. That the cares and troubles of this world can easily consume our zeal for God and his purposes, and it doesn't do it in a day, it does it over time. It's very incremental. And that's why we need to really think about how we establish our priorities. And to see, based on what we're doing, is sitting at Jesus' feet really a priority for us? Or is it something that we do with our leftovers? Um, we know the answer to that, so does God, uh, and we need to uh, solely consider what we can do. So, uh, we've talked about this better part, but what is the better part that we're talking about? And in a context, it is sitting at Jesus' feet, which means to hear his word. Uh, it's very tempting for Christians today to kind of reduce sitting at Jesus' feet to studying the Bible and assembling with the saints. Those are kind of two of the, the, the major flashpoints in 2 Timothy 3, 14-17, Hebrews 10, 25. And certainly these things are part of sitting at Jesus' feet, and they're very important, but we need to realize that sitting at Jesus' feet can involve a lot more. Because to sit at Jesus' feet is to spend time with Jesus, to grow and to cultivate our relationship with him. And again, we want to make sure there's no argument here, that yep, we learn about Jesus through what has been made known in Scripture, and we need to dedicate ourselves to considering and meditating upon the Scriptures in 2 Timothy 3, 14-17. But sitting at Jesus' feet also means spending the time with the Lord in prayer in Ephesians 6.18, Colossians 3.17, 1 Thessalonians 5.16, that we find rest in Him. 
that uh, remember that when you're sitting, it's reclining at table in the ancient world. And it requires some level of stopping and resting from the anxieties and troubles of life to clear one's mind, to clear one's life. And that's how we can also learn what it means to sit at Jesus' feet by looking at the alternative that Martha's engaged in this point, which is saturation in the anxieties and troubles of daily life. And if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of us are anxious all the time, and even anxious in our relationship with God and Christ, uh, constantly needing to add words and to fill our time with God with words uh, because we're just scared to death of the thin still silence. I mean, how many of us can really feel comfortable just sitting at Jesus' feet to listen without speaking, to meditate without distractions, to sing, focus single-mindedly on the Lord and His purposes without a thousand other issues, challenges, deadlines, and things filling the mind? I know I struggle with it, and I think, honestly, most of us would say the same. How many of us prioritize that time of rest and prayer in Jesus? Because it's not going to be prioritized for us. And we can find a thousand reasons and justifications for not doing so. But they're all going to involve, at best, the lesser goods. The demands of work, parents, spouses, children, friends, society, even church. You can get so busy in church that you forget about Jesus. And the world's ideology doesn't help us, where we've kind of imbibed this idea that uh, if we're not productive, we're not valuable. And that any time that is not spent doing something is a waste of time. Uh, even though we deep down need that time of rest and refreshment by sitting at Jesus' feet. And as good as a lot of these things are, they're not the better part. And so, as Christians, we need to relentlessly pursue that better part, to dedicate time to prayer and study and devotion to Jesus in the midst of the fray, um, to be like Mary at times, even though many times we're going to be like Martha, and we need to be careful about making it too much a binary, you know, being a Mary and a Martha world. Well, sure, but Mary and Martha are two sides of the same coin. Because we all are going to have our Martha moments, and we're all going to, we need to have our Mary moments as well. And so the way we establish our priorities in ways that glorify God in Jesus, to sit at Jesus' feet, and to that end share in life with him forever. We're again so glad that you've joined us. If you've benefited from this, we encourage you to please share it with friends and family and others on social media. And uh, please uh, subscribe to our podcast wherever you found us. Uh, if you have any questions about anything we've talked about, if you'd like to discuss anything further, uh, if you um, have a prayer request, if you just want to check us out and come find out more about us, please find us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org, and we're also on uh, social media. We again thank you. Have a great day.